2: Welcome to Star Talk. I am Dr. Natalie Starkey, and this is Star Talk All Stars. Today, I'm going to be your all star host, and joining me as a co host, I have comedian Chuck Nice. Hey,
0: Natalie. Yay, Natalie. Nice.
2: Natalie. Natalie. Nice to see you. To Thank see you, you for coming in. Um, a so today the plan is to field some fan questions about our our topic today. In you know the cosmic queries. Um, yes. We're going to be looking at the topic of the Rosetta mission.
0: Yes. Which is really exciting. It very much is an exciting mission.
2: Very close to my heart. I'm it's, sure it is. Kind of what I've been doing for my research the last few years. Um, and so I'm excited to talk about Rosetta, very excited. and I'm also more excited mm-hmm. to introduce our our guest today joining us via Skype, um, and it is Dr. Matt Taylor.
0: Dr. Matt Taylor.
2: Yes, welcome, Matt. <laughs>
1: Thank you for having
2: me. That's all right. Um, Now, Matt, you are the project scientist for the European Space Agency Rosetta mission. This is quite an exciting title. I wish I had your job, but you are really, really busy. So I don't envy you for the amount of travel and talks you're currently doing. But um, it's so good to have you here.
1: It's my pleasure. It's my pleasure. It is a a bit hectic at the moment, surely.
2: So explain to us, there's a lot going on, right? So we've had uh, the Rosetta mission launched, I mean, over 10 years ago now, right? And uh, it's been traveling to this comet. It was traveling to a comet for all of this time. It had to catch up with this comet, get onto the same orbit, which is no small matter in itself. Right. And then in 2014, it actually caught up with the comet, went into orbit around it. First time ever we've done this. Yes. And then not only that, a couple of months later, landed Landed. a spacecraft on a comet, which was just the best thing ever and you know first time we've ever done this um it was successful a soft landing there was a little bit of a bumpy ride um, right. until it came to rest but you know it's done science it did it f- its first science sequence as planned and then since then the little lander little fillet lander as it's fillet. called that's correct um is asleep it's gone to sleep
0: It's going to sleep
2: that what's happened to it
0: is that the scientist way of saying that it's now on a farm with your grandmother <laughs> What do you mean when you say it's gone to sleep? What's happening? Are you guys trying to tell me
1: something? (laughs) The the problem with it, it's like Schrodinger's lander. We can't really tell. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) (laughs) I got you. We can't go up to the comet and kick it to see if it's still alive. Uh, It's uh, highly unlikely to be uh, able to function anymore at the moment due to power limitations, due to the fact that it's moving away from the sun. Right. But... Yeah. As, as Natalie said, we, we carried out the first science sequence. We carried out the, the main part of the science. Uh, it, was, it did what it was supposed to do, which was to go into hibernation. Um, and it's just because it did this extra little uh, leap across the comet, that it was mm-hmm. put into a situation or a location where um, it, it took a bit longer to come out of hibernation than originally planned. Mm-hmm.
2: I think you guys were just being cheeky though because you were like we want to land on a comet but hey wait a minute we're going to land three times not once you know we're going to just do it all in one go. <laughs> it's it's
1: funny, funny enough the origin, one of the original lander proposals uh, I think this is by uh, Helmut Rosenbaum the, the kind of main father of the lander mission itself was to have a comet hopper that was jumping around that would go to one place and then go somewhere else and it was as if that ethos was somehow impregnated into the lander that it wasn't happy enough to be in one place. It wanted to go somewhere yeah, else. Like, so it it knew.
2: Said, it was like, I like that proposal. Let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to do it anyway. But it's kind of crazy because, you know, comets have like so little gravity. These things are right. relatively small compared to, you know, one of the planets. So it's just really lucky that it didn't, on one of these bounces... Just
0: bounce completely off and completely, just go, Yeah. right? It would Because that could have yeah. been a scenario where it, really it bounced off mm. and it, it would have been lost forever at that point, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly. Yeah. There'd be no way of getting it. it had no power itself, the, right. the lander. So it couldn't have got itself yeah, back. It
0: couldn't
1: have gone back.
2: Yeah. So uh, that, that actually, would have been a bad.
1: It, it clipped one of the kind of clips or whatever you want to call some of the features on the surface of the comet. And I think without that, um, it had lost a little bit more momentum. And without that little clip that it made, it may have had a little bit too much momentum on one of the bounces and ended up going over the edge. And that was it. It would have been lost so, yeah, so
2: we were lucky we we got it we got some science which i'd love to discuss if we've got time today um but you know it's it's still there but it woke up right the lander did wake up again in was it july last year or something
1: yeah was june july time period but we never got a a, a full uh, accurate signal lock with it there was there were some issues we never really got in, uh, in in talking terms with it properly right but it's really it's important to know, I have to know, that this isn't the only part of the mission. Uh, this gets forgotten, that mm-hmm. it, the, the Rosetta mission is more than the 60 hours of uh, data taken that we had with Philae, that we were, and the majority of the science is being done by the orbiter and remains being done by the orbiter. Says the um, physicist, yeah. I have right to point
2: out, because all the physics experiments are on the orbiter. Okay. I'm a geologist, so I'm like, right, I want to be on right, the you comet. You want to be on you know, the comet
0: and pulling up samples and yeah, yeah, getting exactly, something back and reading. He is exactly readings. right.
2: The orbiter is still functioning. And, All right, um, so
0: uh, Matt, when, with respect to the orbiter, um, what kind of data are you looking to receive and uh, as it? orbits this comet on its journey. Is it just primarily looking at the comet or is it surveying the, uh, the, the you know, what's around the comet and where the comet is going? It, it, are both of those things happening
1: or one of those things or what? It's, it's doing both. Rosetta itself, the key aspect was that, unlike any other mission we'd done before to a comet, uh, we were gonna stay with the comet. So as Natalie said before, we rendezvoused and we got in the same orbit as the comet. And we've been doing that for over two years now. Uh, So we got in in step with the comet and we've seen how the comet has evolved in time. As it gets closer to the Sun it was becoming more and more active throwing more material off. We've been monitoring the comet and we've been observing the comet both the nucleus and the outer atmosphere and how that actually in addition how that interacts with the outer atmosphere of the Sun as well. So the whole you know the whole nine yards that's what we've been looking at. We've really been uh, looking, the whole thing about the Rosetta mission is to study this comet as in-depth as possible and with the lander we get the ground truth of these measurements but with the orbiter we get the global view and we match those together. That was the key aspect of this. We do the majority of the science with the orbiter but the the lander was there, Philae was there to get on the ground and give us the ground truth to really dig in and and let scientists like Natalie who like to, you know, dig and and scrape in and and sniff and taste things. It's good. She's (laughs) always rolling around and playing in the mud.
2: (laughs) But Matt, what I wanted to just mention is the end of the mission, because it's going to be a really sad time for all of us. I imagine more so for the guys that are really heavily involved um, on the mission side. But mm. the end is coming. It's this year. The end is near. The end is very near. Oh my goodness. Um, and there are some really crazy plans of how this mission is going to end. Um, and it involves essentially crashing this orbiter that's doing all this amazing science, with all these very expensive instruments on board, crashing this thing into the comet
0: okay now um that sounds matt very much like when i was a kid i would build a giant lego castle and then kick it down (laughs) why 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 is that the end of the mission what is going on with you guys
1: i'm like you know i've always wanted to break stuff (laughs) really expensive things Uh, no it The the problem we have is the comet is moving away through Keplerian motion. It's moving away from the sun. Now, the spacecraft is orbiting around or, or, or is in the same orbit. That's moving away from the sun as well, losing the capability of generating power. So we'll get to a situation where we would have to put it into hibernation. We had to do that before because it moved so far away from the sun anyway. And because of the orbit the spacecraft is now in, with the comet, it would freeze. Uh, We're also running out of fuel, we'll have no fuel left soon. And the best thing to do was to end the mission um, in around September, October time. Actually, the reason for that is we get to a time where the solar energy is reducing, but also we go into a conjunction with the sun. So the signal that we're getting from the spacecraft is very minimal at that time period. So we kind of thought the end of September would be a good time to close the mission off. Now, we could have just switched the mission off or do something more extravagant. And the more extravagant thing has been to control, have carry out a controlled impact with a comet.
0: A
2: controlled impact, sorry. Impact. Not a crash. Yes, <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: You know, that's what I tried to tell my insurance company about my last controlled impact with another car. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, I love this idea because it means on the way down, um, the instruments are still going to be on and they're going to get tons of information as they go down because this will be the closest we've ever been with the orbiter obviously right. having not crashed it into the comet yet they've done some amazing maths to work out sorry math Right, right i'm in the states now yes. i forget yes. yeah. um yeah we've done some some very clever math to work out how to orbit around this thing uh-huh. because it's not quite it's haven't really got enough gravity for an orbiter to just orbit right
0: kind of happily. It's not going to be in a gravitational it's, tractor pull. A
2: little bit, but it's been in powered flight a lot of the time. Okay. So it's like, you, do, you don't want to get too close, but this comet is also active. So it's got material streaming off the surface. So you don't want to get our orbiter too close and be hit by dust. By, coming right, off particles the coming So off of this is like our best chance to get close, get some really detailed images of the surface. I think, you know, one pixel, is that going to be... A meter or better than that? Um, do we hope oh,
1: we'll get much, I think once we get to within ten kilometers, we we get we go sub-meter, fifty centimeters, ten centimeters. Uh, we're going to get very high-resolution images once we get down to that level. Really? Um, yeah.
0: yeah. And and yeah. so as you take this, uh, as you capture these images, uh, and you're still in orbit around the comet as it's doing its controlled impact. Uh, if, are you going to be surveying all parts of the comet, like kind of going around it and taking pictures, like a you know, like a radio camera? Like, is that is will that be the is that the case?
1: That that final what we're calling the last words of Rosetta is actually still being dis- well, I wouldn't say discussed, is being calculated because although that this comet is uh, very low density. Uh, and has a weak gravitational attraction, it still has gravity. So the orbiter actually is now in a bound orbit. We're at about, I think it's a 26 by 20 kilometer orbit. We will go closer and closer and closer. We'll get below 10 kilometers. And once we get to below 10 kilometers, things get very complicated because of this duck-like structure. And so we have a very weird gravitational potential once we get down to that. So we'll have to put it in a special orbit and really be careful at how we control the spacecraft around that time and we will feel perturbations of of, of that gravity and we will be continuing to try and do as many measurements as possible once we get close by. Now, those final words, as we're you know, we talking about the last day of Rosetta, what we do there is still being discussed, still being fine-tuned. We believe it will be some kind of a resting maneuver from a, a, paris- a close pericenter um, orbit. So we'll have like a maybe a, an, uh, an elliptic orbit um, that goes within about one, one kilometer maybe at the surface, maybe even lower, depending again on what we're doing in September. And then we'll inject towards 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 the comet and just set ourselves up to be able to take data as close as possible. Now, the priority will be the imager, but also the mass spectrometer to sniff Everything as close as possible. We'll we'll have other instruments operating, but when we start getting to low power during that period, we really have to say, right, these are the priority instruments. Getting those images, getting the high resolution images, and also the high resolution spe- spectra from this mass spectrometer that's that excites me. That does excite me. I is. love mass spectrometry. And
0: is there is there any um <clears throat> anticipation as to what the comet will smell like? Because I'm hoping Jasmine. <laughs>
1: It is far from nice. Uh, we already know eggy, how horrible think. this thing smells. Yeah. There's alcohol on it. It's, it's it's like a kind of a Friday night uh, in a bar area in any city in the U.S. or the Britain or wherever. <laughs> like Are you Are
0: you telling me this comet will smell like a drunken fart?
2: Yeah, pretty Basically. much. Yeah. yeah,
0: that's it. yeah. It's, it's not probably not
2: not a good place to be. <laughs>
0: It smells like Jersey. <laughs> so, I can say that. I live there. Okay. Chuck,
2: we should probably move on to some of these fan yes. questions. Because we've been oh, That was a lot. That, no,
0: that was a, that was a ton of fun. Get, and honestly. I that, want to get some questions. Yeah, we should get some questions yeah. uh, without a doubt. But I'm so happy that we had that conversation. Because yeah. now I know that uh, basically we spent a billion dollars to find out that a comet smells like a fart. <laughs> and quite frankly, that was worth my tax dollars. Okay. <laughs> all right, guys, let us uh, go to our cosmic queries where we have taken questions from all over the internet and in every different incarnation where Star Talk exists. And, um,. I am going to uh, start off with Greg Fisher from Facebook, and Greg says this: Are we planning any other missions to any other comets? Is there any specific interest in landing on one of the asteroids in between Mars and Jupiter, or in the Oort cloud? Oh, this is a great. That question. is a very good question, this is a Greg.
2: Very good question. Thank you. I, this is. Oh, I love this subject. There's so much to talk about, but I'll try and I'll keep it fairly short. So. We're not planning any missions to comets at the moment, unfortunately, but we are planning some missions to some asteroids. Now, these are not in the asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter because it's quite a long way to go. Right. What we do is we wait for these asteroids to be knocked out of the asteroid belt and join us in the inner solar system. So these become near-Earth asteroids.
0: So now, let me just, uh, I'm, I'm not infringing uh, and, and, and on your question, Greg, but... How do we know when an asteroid is going to get knocked out of the asteroid belt?
2: We don't know when, but we... I don't think we can tell when anyway, but I'm probably not the right person to ask. But we know when they have been knocked out okay. and we know we can trace the orbit, so we can we can observe them in space. And we have a whole list of near-Earth asteroids and we have a list of those that are on potentially Earth-crossing orbits. These are the ones that we need to worry about and we, we keep an eye on them um, and we check You know that we need to just really define the orbit really carefully and work out. And, and gradually these fall off the list because most of them end up not, you know, as we work out a little bit more where they're going. They're not going to hit us. But there's a few that we want to go and visit with space missions because the kind of easy to get to because they're already on a better orbit. We don't have to go as far. Um, there's the NASA OSIRIS REX mission, which is launching this year. It should be launching this year, and it's going to approach uh, an asteroid called Bennu in uh, 2018, I believe. And it's going to be collecting samples to bring back to Earth, which is pretty much probably just the second time that's happened. Uh, the Japanese had a mission called mm-hmm. Hayabusa that did this a couple years ago. I've worked on some of those samples. Okay, Tiny little dust samples from this asteroid. But there's also... Um, at um, uh, uh, the Hayabusa 2 mission, which is another Japanese one. It's already been launched, and that is going to another asteroid, near Earth asteroid, and collecting some hopefully collecting samples again. So we have a couple that we're going to. Turns terms of getting to the Oort cloud, collecting samples that's not going to happen. It's just so, so far away. Again, we need to wait for one of these comets to be knocked into the inner solar system for us to to go to it, like we did with Rosetta and 67P. It came to us, so it makes it a lot easier. The Oort cloud is just an immense distance away that uh, it would be. Yeah, we'll, we'll never get there, I don't think. Yeah, okay. <laughs> not in our lifetimes.
0: All right. Oh, well, Greg, that's a, that is a great, great uh, question, because uh, uh, this is a cool question. Do you know what,
2: Chuck? We actually need to take a break. Okay,
0: well, then can I'm not going to read this
2: then. Can we come back? Can you save it till uh-huh. after the break? Oh, no, that's it. We've oh, you've
0: ruined the show Dan. We've ruined it now. Oh, no.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay, so we are going to take a short break, but we'll be right back with Star Talk All-Stars.
1: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do.
2: Welcome back to Star Talk all stars I am Natalie Starkey, and I still have here with me Chuck Nice, who's going to be yes. asking me some more cosmic queries, and I've got Matt Taylor on hand from the European Space Agency to help answer some of the questions if yes. I can't answer them.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. So let's uh, let's jump right back into our cosmic queries. and uh, let's uh, let's go to Josephina Aquiero. Ooh, nice uh, again. Yes, Aquiero in Waltham, Massachusetts. Okay. And uh, Josephina wants to know this. She says, first of all, I'm a huge fan of Rosetta Mission and Star Talk. Aren't we all? Oh, there you go. There we go. <laughs> that just means you're smart, Josephina. That's all that means. Uh, I'm a chemist by trade, and I was wondering what the implications would be of a Rosetta finding that. A, only left-handed amino acids were found on comet 67P, or B, only right-handed amino acids, or C, a racemic mixture, i.e., equal amounts of both. Hey. Now, before you and Matt <laughs> go totally geek boner crazy... <laughs> <laughs> on this question you're going to have to tell us what all of that means
2: what it all means because
0: i have no idea what josephina is talking about but it's an opportunity for me to learn something
2: okay so we'll kick off with the fact that we want to look for organic material in space and i think this is kind of what the question is getting at are we looking for organic material in this comet well yes we are there's quite a few instruments on the orbiter and lander that are looking for these features and trying to detect carbon molecules. Now, in terms of looking for anything more advanced than that, if we're talking DNA, I don't think there's anything that can look for that. But if we come back a step before we get to DNA, we've got amino acids which form from carbon molecules. And these are what we would refer to as the basic building blocks for life. So We kind of need these to get life started, we think. Um, and our bodies contain loads of amino acids and we found amino acids in space before. We found them in asteroids, um, meteorites that land on the surface as pieces of asteroids. We found lots and lots of amino acids. So we know that the building blocks are out there. Now with Rosetta we're not looking for these specifically but there are a couple of instruments that are trying to detect carbon compounds now i'm going to pass over to matt because he can now tell us a little bit about what some of those instruments have found because it's quite recent research that's just come out
0: oh we're Um, getting breaking news here
2: yep it is definitely so yeah matt there's a couple of instruments on the lander that have found some interesting stuff related to the organic material
1: yeah um both ptolemy so Open University Instrument also Cossack from uh, from Germany were focusing on this specifically. Now from my knowledge and now remember I'm a plasma physicist so this is <laughs> on the edge of my, uh, my, my comfort zone as it were. I know that we did find a lot of organic material. We could see that organic material. This is carbon-based material. The comet is really, really dark. It, it's it's very, very black. It reflects less than 5% of the sunlight that, uh, that is uh, input to it. So that really tells you that we have this very carbon-rich material on the surface, and as I was saying before, that you know this this ground-level uh, taste of the of the comet was what we needed from from uh, Philae, and that's what it got, even with the bouncing across the surface of the comet. And we had samples. Well, I'm, I'm trying to remember. Actually, I think Cossack. If, if up is the top of the lander and down is the bottom of the lander, I think Cossack was pointing down yeah. and um, Ptolemy, Ptolemy was pointing was up.
2: Exactly, yeah. And so they kind
1: of got this fractional um, sample of, of the atmosphere in the near surface. So Cossack actually got the dust that was kicked up from the, from the surface and really got some nice... Um, uh, nitrogen and carbon-rich compounds. I think there were four compounds that were ne- have never been seen before, uh, and these are associated, I think, again, on the edge of my memory, uh, with ribose, which is a sugar which then is, you know, again, a building block of uh, or can be connected to amino acids and DNA. So that was seen on the bottom with COSAC, and on the top it was more of the coma material, more of the gaseous material that we were seeing in the atmosphere. And so we were able to see that and uh, distinguish the different components From from the lander and the orbiter, we have Rosina that's got this fantastic uh, array of instruments that do mass spectrometry and can sample material there. They've been looking at um, uh, more. Well, we've we've had record or or, uh, instances of seeing uh, different. uh, Well, we were talking about it before the methane, etc. And we hope to get some uh, more information on that soon. That's all I'm.
2: (laughs) Oh, we have an insight here. Right. This is exciting. Uh, this is cool. But, yeah, but it's great
1: because. So- related to
2: this. Okay, well, it's great because all the different instruments have done slightly different things, um, and actually they don't all necessarily agree, which is quite interesting. So well, now,
0: what, what do you mean by that? Because that sounds uh, that, that sounds very sounds contradictory. Worrying, yeah. Yeah. And it sounds um, worrisome. Uh, what do you mean that they don't all particularly agree?
2: Well, basically, because they're measuring different things. As okay. Matt was saying, the COSAC instrument is measuring the composition of basically the rock of, of the comet, right. because it's right at the surface. Right. Whereas the Ptolemy, so it, it saw nitrogen compounds and things, right. and then Ptolemy was measuring the gas around that so it didn't actually measure any nitrogen we don't really know why. Maybe the nitrogen wasn't kicked up high enough so right. that Ptolemy didn't get it into its its mass spectrometer. Um, but it measured lots of carbon dioxide. So we know there's a lot of carbon there. Um, right. They agree on some things. But then you've got Rosina, which is way outside of the comet, looking at the coma and everything outside of that. And that's, you know, obviously got different results. But I'm sure they'll be complementary. Right. It's just you're looking at different parts. It's a common so It's not system. that they don't
0: agree, it's that they're measuring different they things. Measuring different things. Okay. Yeah. And those things don't always <laughs> just perfectly mesh.
2: No, we have to put all of these little bits of data together and build up our picture of the comet because it's an active system. You okay. know, we've got to understand what it's doing as it goes towards the sun, how it's getting heated up and how that's affecting the different molecules on on it.
0: OK. So, yeah. But, but the one thing that we can say, Matt, is that it's not broken. So it's not like it's measuring Different things because no, it's not no, working. No,
1: no. I, I, One thing that I recall is when I. What I want to know is are you wasting my money? <laughs> <laughs> these, are, these are highly intricate instruments, but one has to recall. And, and, and I remember talking to a colleague of mine who uh, was an undergraduate with me when I was in Liverpool University, and he remembers mass spectrometers being as big as a room and I think Natalie you know you I remember uh, talking to you at OU with these big machines yeah now you can't fly something that big in space so you have to miniaturize the instrument and I'm not saying the the instrument well it has less capability it's still a fantastic instrument but you've miniaturized it so it has um, a limited capability compared to something on earth So there's a limitation in what you can do. So you have to make assumptions on the observations that you're making. So the spectra have, you know, when you're looking at a mass spectrum, there are bumps and wiggles and lines everywhere that could be various different compounds that this thing's sniffing. And you have to make assumptions based on your understanding in general of what they are. So it's really you're doing the best you can with an instrument that's been packed in from a room size instrument to something as big as or smaller than a shoebox.
2: Yeah. Wow. It is amazing. That's, and Because we need the instruments to be light, right? because we've got to launch them into space. Exactly. And we need them to be relatively simple, because we don't have a human to go up right. there there's, and run you, there's it. There's no
0: maintenance know. for this. If anything
2: goes wrong, there's pretty much not anything you can do. Right. You know, you pre-program sequences that it will run, and the computer programs, and it runs them. And if anything goes wrong, there's just nothing you can do about it. So these things have got to be simple, but it doesn't mean they're actually simple. You know, right. They're still doing very complicated yeah, it's, science. It, yeah,
0: it's it's physicist simple. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah it, it is. Yeah. It's like, you know, you you guys' simple is like most people's. I just died of a stroke thinking about it.
2: And they also have a, a, another version of the instrument on the ground. So the scientists, you know, have been waiting 10 years for this to get to the comet. They've actually been able to f- perform lots of calibration experiments on their version that they've got, maybe in a, a chamber that's uh, kind of like comet conditions. So right. it's an vacuum and stuff. And they can actually run sequences on it to test how that instrument's going to work in space. Nice. Okay. So that's important as well. There's a lot of work that goes into it.
0: And 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 so, Matt, when you're running these calibrations, do you then take uh, that and make an adjustment to the data that you receive from space uh, and and adjust it accordingly to the calibrations that you run here on Earth?
1: Well, yeah, that's what you do, and, and actually, something that was done based on the Rosetta measurements. So, the Rosetta uh, for this was for Rosina. They made measurements um, with their their highly advanced instrument, and they were able to actually go back to data that was taken thirty years ago from wow. the Halley mission. Wow! Uh, the, the Giotto mission at Halley and readdress some of the spectra that were taken there with the instruments there and reanalyze them based on the measurements we have here. So in a kind of cross spacecraft mission calibration as well. So all of this data you can go across and and, and, and cross compare and improve your measurements. That is fantastic.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's really fascinating stuff. Well, uh, Josefina, uh, let me just tell you, that was an (laughs) incredible question that you gave us because I mean, who knew that we would get all of that out of this one question? Really fascinating stuff, and and I learned some things there too. That was really great. well I feel like I'm one of the Cosby kids. Say, ah, look at that! I learned something too. Ah, you don't
1: even realize. Okay, all right, I'm going to stop that right now. Just to, just to jump in there because the um, Josephina had asked about chirality. Um,
0: and yeah. that was
1: one of the measurements we wanted to do on the lander uh, with Cosac, and that's the only instrument that could have made this measurement. And this is to look at the hand that. the the, the, it's basically the symmetry of the molecules you can either have left-handed or sorry hang on my left-handed or (laughs) right-handed and you and again it's this connection with the material we see in space and how is it connected to life on earth and certain things on earth have a particular chirality and others have a different chirality and by looking on the comet we'd be matching and seeing if there is a match between the two so are the amino acids on the comet left-handed or right-handed or are they both and vice versa for other things, sugars and DNA and this kind of thing, and trying to see if there is a connection with those that we're finding on on Earth. The problem is... Um, with the lander, we weren't able to get a sample in the ovens, which was necessary to run a specific part of the COSAC instrument, which was to examine chirality. So, without that, now that the lander is most likely not going to function anymore, we have not been able to carry out that measurement. So, I just wanted to get back to that. That yeah. part of the question. Oh, nice.
0: Yeah. All it's right.
2: Still, it still needs doing.
0: Still so needs doing. Well, there you go, Josephina. That's. Uh, I believe we have thoroughly answered this question yeah. <laughs> uh, from top to We've bottom, and in and out. This is, honestly. <laughs> (laughs) This was uh this answering this question was like a cosmic proctology exam. (laughs) So let us move on. Okay. (laughs) Look at Matt laughing.
1: (laughs) Uh, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to quote you on that. (laughs) (laughs) Uh this is
0: Sven uh Rosandik. Or I don't know how to say his last name. I'm sorry, Sven. Uh Rosandik. Where is he from? Um I don't know, but with a name Say. like Sven, I think he's a Viking. Yeah, um, so. <laughs> so uh, this is what Sven says. Uh, he doesn't tell us where he's from, but he's writing to us from Facebook. Um, this is what he says. Would it be possible to land a spacecraft such as Rosetta on a comet and then stay in contact with it so that every few years it sends us more information? And so I'm going to add on to that, uh, with that in mind, would we be able to land on a comet... Uh, like, I'm, just say, for instance, like Halley's comet, which we know leaves our solar system, goes, and then comes back. Yeah. Will we be able to uh, do what Sven said, and then get readings from that comet uh, wherever it goes, and then gather those readings when it comes back to us?
2: I mean, kind of, and it there's. There's a lot to say with this answer really. It's it's more that yes you could in theory but the problem is when comets get really far away from the earth and the sun It gets really cold, and communications take forever. So you're going to have to put that spacecraft into hibernation, most likely, like we did with Rosetta. As it was trying to catch up with the comet 67P, it got very far away. Right. Um, So it it had to go into hibernation, go to sleep for a couple of years. Um, So you you could do that. Um, You need to leave a little bit on because it needs to stay warm in order for the instruments to actually kind of work. Otherwise, they're just going to completely freeze and and be broken. So if you could do that, bring it back in, um, turn it back on. Not always that easy when we had to bring Rosetta out of hibernation that was stressful because we didn't know it was going to turn back on it was right. like you know Matt I mean you can probably add something to this I mean I was there watching it on you know the internet feeds but I was stressed you know and it, right. it, it, we got the signal and it took longer than we thought and I mean it must have been but you were you in mission control for this
1: it, yeah I was it was fine it was it was
2: fun fine fun. he's like I play it down there's been no so much happening it. since then but I was Jeez, like piece of cake yeah, right? It was all right. yeah nothing there to
1: was it but, i mean we we put the you know the best people had designed this to happen so so we'd done the best job of getting it out of hibernation yeah. so yeah, and as you said, it had been delayed a little bit but uh, in the end, it did come back. In fact, when you talk about stress, the one guy I remember who looked the most stressed mm-hmm. was the person that was involved in writing the software for the hibernation exit. And he looked much, uh, he was the most relieved person in the room. I
2: can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that would be, yeah. Big because
0: moment. at that point, it's all on him. Yeah. And you know, everybody's going to point their finger, even though they're not physically pointing a finger. They're just like, yep, Thomas, yeah, it's totally tough. fucked up. <laughs> I think I would have fainted when that happened. I would have exactly. just been like, you know, oh my goodness. You know, it's the truth. It. It's just like, you know what I mean? It's like Alex Rodriguez uh, in the bottom of the ninth, and the bases are loaded, and you're up to bat. And you know, when you strike out, people are just like, what a waste of $30 million. <laughs> Nobody says, like, it's okay. Everybody <laughs> says it's okay, but you know what they're really thinking is, dude, you just wasted all of our money. And that's it. Yeah. Thomas, thanks for the program. You screwed us yeah. all.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I can imagine that is pretty stressful. But yes. So in theory, Matt, I think, you know, we're running out a little bit of time on this segment. Are we running so, out? But I think it's kind of possible, but it probably isn't the most important thing okay. for us to be trying to do um, because it's better to go to, to an asteroid or a comet and measure it and then get done with, theoretically, I would love to bring samples back. That would be the best thing. So
0: it's more important to get on that comet as it's, traversing out close enough to our solar system yeah land on it get something off of it and come back and bring a physical sample home
2: exactly which okay. is what yeah. we're trying to do with some of the future asteroid missions okay okay so we're going to wrap it up there for this uh, section but um we're going to be right back some more cosmic queries when we come back with star talk all-stars Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm Natalie Starkey. Still here with me is Chuck Nice and Matt yes. Taylor from the European Space Agency. Yes. We're going to yes. carry on with some more cosmic queries.
0: More cosmic queries. Um, inquiries from the internet. It's my new song.
2: <laughs> it's lovely.
0: Yeah, my album drops on Tuesday. Thank <laughs> you. All right, here's the deal. Um, I lost the question I wanted to. Here it is. Okay. Graham Woolley. Graham Woolley <laughs> wants to know this. Why are Plutoids, made of different material than comets. Their origins are both trans-Neptunian.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. Lots yeah. of lots This
0: of is a guy here. who... He
2: knows what he's talking about. the guy about, who
0: read an article in Scientific American. I think so. i you right now. He knows his stuff. Okay. <laughs> okay.
2: So let's break this down a little bit we've got the kuiper belt or the kuiper belt however you want to say this
0: you know what's funny i you know of course doing this job here uh uh, i get to talk to a lot of scientists Yep. and i still don't know if it's kuiper belt or kuiper belt i think it's because i hear so many of you say it this
1: both ways
2: i say kuiper you say
1: kuiper matt what do you say I think I I oscillate. I think it's Kuiper. <laughs> You're Kuiper? It's, I, but, it's a Dutch, okay. I think it's Dutch origin. So okay, it, yeah, so Kuiper. yeah.
0: Okay. So Neil says Kuiper, you say Kuiper. Matt, you say Kuiper, but I know several uh, physicists Kuiper. who say Kuiper.
2: Yeah, I think that's what Matt said.
0: Quaker. Yeah, is, is, is Matt Kuiper uh, too? So. Yeah, so I think I'm in the middle somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Always the politician, Matt. Look at you, exactly. the diplomat. The, the, right. <laughs> All so,
2: right, go ahead. We have the Kuiper Belt. This is kind of way out past Neptune and the solar system. Not as far as the Oort cloud. We also have comets, but the Kuiper Belt is important. There's a lot of comets there. Right. It's also where kind of Pluto happens to be. So um, we've got. Objects like Pluto. Now the difference is that we've got objects like Pluto that are around and contain a lot of ice But seem to look a bit like a planet. That's right. why Pluto used to be a planet used Unfortunately, no longer.
0: Neil killed it.
2: Yeah, he did. Right. Yeah, he killed it. Thanks, Neil <laughs> Then we have the comets which are the remnants of the very earliest parts of the solar system The remnants of this dust cloud that we started with. Right. They also contain a lot of ice right now we still don't really understand where all of these objects came from and right. where exactly where they formed. Now, it's thought that we've got the Kuiper Belt, which is closer in, and the Oort Cloud, which is further away. We actually think that the Oort Cloud comets formed closer into the sun than the Kuiper Belt initially, mm. and actually they were so close to the sun that they they kind of interacted with some of the inner planetary bodies mm-hmm. and were kicked way out of the solar system. Okay. So when we see them coming in to the inner solar system occasionally, and we can look at them with telescopes, and even go to them with missions, um, we actually see their particular composition. And when we measure the ones from the Kuiper Belt, they're different. But then we've also got the Plutoids, which are another kind of family of objects out there. Problem is they're all really far away and we don't go to them. You know, we've now, with the New Horizons, of course, we have been out this far. And, uh, well, some other missions have been that far as well, but specifically to look at these objects. Um, So we're still learning about them. So I kind of like can't answer the question that well, Matt, do you have anything to add? Because it's like we just we need to just learn more about these things.
1: Yeah, I think that's the thing. It's trying to constrain what you call a particular thing, and that's the thing. You start associating names to different objects, and well, as you're alluding to the Kuiper Belt and the Oort Cloud. um, When you look at sixty-seven P with Rosetta, that's a a Jupiter-class comet, likely from well, we we call it a very a a classic and a, a true Kuiper Belt object. We have other Jupiter-class comets that we've observed that have a completely different composition if I relate to the deuterium-to-hydrogen ratios, which are kind of a a, a proxy for this whole where where they formed with respect to the sun in the early solar system. And what we found with Rosetta and also the Halley measurements were similar to 67P, Showing a, a broad range of these D to H uh, ratios for a particular class of comets, which again mixes up your understanding of the dynamical processes and the evolution for those particular bodies. So it's a, a bit of a difficult mix. And when you say, right, okay, Kuiper belt, Oort cloud, that's the comets, and then we've got the asteroid belt, but then most, re- you know, in the last 10 or so years, people have started talking about main belt comets as well. So this classification of these small bodies in the solar system is becoming more and more diverse. Right. And I think they're all an intermix of everything. It's just their evolutionary processes or their evolutionary track has been very different. And by doing Rosetta, by doing New Horizons, by doing asteroid missions, we try and get a better idea of a one particular asteroid and how that fits into the global picture and all the, sim- the massive simulations we're doing. So it's not an easy one to answer. We are learning.
2: Yeah, we are. And And I mean, Matt mentioned the um, D to H ratios, which are really important for understanding these objects. And we can actually measure that in, kind of on the object, um, Mm -hmm. if we can get to it, or we can measure it with telescopes. Now, you're then comparing measurements made by different kinds of instruments. What we're looking at is essentially the composition of the water or or ice, water ice or liquid water, mostly ice. Right. Um, And we're looking at the heavy type of hydrogen, which is deuterium, in relation to the lighter type, which is hydrogen. And we're literally just looking at the the abundance of those
0: two things. things
2: and that tells us a lot about where we think that form
0: right so let me ask you both this uh, uh based on what we just talked about there um what would you rather have a physical rock sample of an asteroid or a chunk of ice from a comet So which one would you rather analyze?
2: Matt, you can go first. Which would you prefer?
1: I'll, I'll, we've had asteroids, so as comet. We have to have a sample of a comet in, in a lab on on Earth.
2: As, I as ice, though. As ice. My
1: thing is yeah, before the. Bring yeah. it back in a big freeze.
2: In a big freezer. A big okay. freezer. So now,
0: now, now let me ask you, because that's a huge. Of, of course, we all see what happens when comets come into the solar system. They get close to the sun, they uh, start yeah. to. They do. And then they just kind of flame out. Yep. So it now, how. I'm sure this is a stupid question because if we knew it, we there are probably no would have stupid done. There are no stupid no. questions. No stupid
2: questions.
0: No. Totally disagree with you. <laughs> when they say there are no stupid questions, I'm just like, you have not heard what I'm about to say. <laughs> so, no. Um, is there plans or a contingency or anything to actually break off a chunk of ice and get it back here? But how would you do that with? But, you know, how do you keep something cold enough yeah, I know. to get it back to Earth so that it doesn't evaporate and disintegrate once it gets, you know, on it's the a, on the journey?
2: It's a massive challenge. and it, But it is something that most sample-based scientists are actively thinking about and trying to work on. Actually, the first place we want to try this is on the Moon because we know we've got ice deposits at the poles of the Moon. Oh. It's relatively close to us. We know we can get to the Moon. We've done it lots of times. Yes. Um, And not saying it's easy, but the challenge will be trying to collect some of these, these ices from the poles and bring them back as ice. Um, Cause you can analyze there. You can go and analyze them with an instrument on, on the moon. But ideally we have, we want to bring stuff back because we've got the best instruments on earth. We've got right. the people, we've right. got the instruments and we can make the best measurements. So- and the best
0: instrument of all is the tongue. <laughs> and you just have a little sip of space water. See what it's like.
2: Yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, this is what we're trying to do. I think that's the first step. And then, yeah, if we could bring about ice from a comet, that would answer some major questions about some of the solar system formation now i say that but the problem is all the comets as we kind of alluded to are all different and we although there's going to be groups of comets that are similar going to one comet isn't actually going to answer all the questions you know it's going to help us but we need to go to lots of
0: them which is a bit of a problem because you are very greedy i am greedy very greedy look (laughs) at you
1: we haven't landed on one and you like oh we got to get to 15 or 20 at least yeah actually just jumping in there in 1987 when rosetta was first thought about that was Actually, a comet sample return. That was what it originated uh, as. It was supposed to go to a comet and bring a bit back to Earth.
0: Yeah. And that
1: was shown to be quite, I mean, it was uh, what we did anyway was quite extravagant. I think they were kind of going, look, look, just cut that bit because you're you're going crazy now. Uh, A lander, yeah, but not a lander, then come back again and then fly all the way back. It 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 effectively uh,
2: makes it like two missions. um, So effectively doubles the cost because not only do you have to land, you've got to then launch again and get off the set. fairly easy on a comet because there's not much gravity.
0: However, the very encouraging and positive thing about this is we're halfway there. We, we got the first half of the mission done,
1: thanks to Matt well, and his team. Thing. Right, yeah, We had to prove with Rosetta that we could land on one in the first place. So, you know, this is the thing. When we went to the moon and Mars, we did lots of orbiters. We did lots of surveying to decide where to land. Right. Whereas with Rosetta, we were doing all of this in one go. In 2014, when we arrived at the comet, we saw what it looked like for the yeah. first time. And then we had to land on it within six months. And that's Some important that to stress.
2: Yeah, that's really important to stress. We'd never seen this thing before. The moon, we've seen it. You know, it's right there. We can just look at it, and we kind of know what it's what it looks like on the surface, what it's made of. Sweet. Um, But yeah, comets, we have no idea. We've never seen it before. Fantastic.
0: Well, Graham Woolley, uh, that was a Woolley was a
1: great question, my friend. Very Very nice. We got the people quickly. What's that? Go ahead. Go to ahead, sound like to try and bring this all in a little bit that we're not we don't know anything about because we've got so many comics. <laughs> One of the key things with Rosetta is uh, and as you alluded to about uh, remote observations, the thing that we can uh, see these comets from the ground on Earth and also space-based and Hubble and, and, and other measurements like the Herschel Space Telescope etc by having Rosetta sitting there next to a comet and when we're observing it from the ground it's kind of like a bootstrapping a calibration of the ground-based observations so when we do that cross-comparison between what we see in situ with what we see on the ground for 67P we can then take those measurements and apply them to all the other cometary observations that we've ever made yeah. and we'll make in future so it's a nice calibration of so things almost then expand expands
2: everything. <laughs> almost like we've been to more comets than that.
1: Right,
0: exactly. So, so yeah. yeah, so everything that we've already observed. Yeah. Now we can re observe exactly. through the eyes of, this new, of Rosetta and 67 yeah. P. Yeah. Fantastic. That's great Good stuff. It's yeah. great, great point. Great point. All right. Graham Woolley, where to go, man. That was a great question. I love it when the when these people really uh think think very deeply about the questions they ask. Uh let's go to uh Okay. Hmm? Okay, Uh, Maria Macario.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Maria Macario, uh, who writes to us and says this from Facebook: When Rosetta flew by the asteroids 21 uh, Lutetia and 2867 Steins, what relevant information did it gather on them? Uh, P.S. I hope Chuck Nice doesn't mispronounce my name. Oh, no. just kidding. <laughs> I'm sure he will.
2: <laughs> well, she well, didn't say how we were to pronounce it. Well, this is true. So we need phonetically. I screw then... up
0: everybody's name, so you know. It sounded good to me. I hope so. And guess what? If if I said it wrong, you should change your name to Maria. Macario. (laughs) 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 Um, So let's talk about these other two asteroids that she said uh, on the flyby. Um, 21 Lutetia and... uh, 2867 steins yeah were we able to get any information yeah from we
2: got days? loads of information so we got loads of images um of these things never really seen them before so you know beautiful images of asteroids up close fairly close anyway and um i think also Matt, am i right in saying we turned on some of the instruments um just to have a little test to see that they were actually yes. going to work eventually um and yeah. kind of sniffed let's say we sniffed the the uh, the asteroids is nice. that that's right isn't it
1: yeah. But I think I think we also ran some of the dust instruments, but they proved that there wasn't really a coma around these uh, objects. So, yeah, there were there were null results, which are results.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, okay. definitely. We got lots of information. So there we go.
0: Yeah.
1: All right. There you
0: go. Uh, no,
1: They were like
2: bonuses to the to the puzzle because. Uh, yeah, that was icing on, on the cake on right? the way. That was on the way.
0: <laughs> exactly. Right. Like it's like, uh, it's like uh, you know, it's like car sex on the way home oh my goodness yeah you know
2: is, um, we have time really for a very short question oh really yeah I love when
0: I make a joke and you can't see it but Matt was laughing and I, I'm just like let's move you're cringing. on and I'm like <laughs> it's like car sex on the way home you're like oh my next question God. Matt, is crack- Matt, is, Matt is cracking the hell up it's just, I love <laughs> it I love it <laughs>
2: <laughs> okay really
0: quick uh, All right. Let me find a quick, quick question. Quick, quick question. All right. Uh, This is Matt Eli from San Antonio, Texas, coming to us from Facebook. Why is the comet surface fluffy?
2: Oh, no, I want longer. I'm going to have to make this really, really short. Okay, so. The comet is essentially made of this early gas and dust from the solar nebula right. um, and ice and it's kind of held together. So this this real dust is like the fluff of the solar system. It's it's not made it into a planet. So the planets kind of consolidated all this dust right. and made it solid like the planets. Um but in the comets it didn't, because it was kind of a low energy environment out in the comet formation zone so this stuff stayed fluffy a bit like candy floss kind of thing so um the surface of the comet is very much fluffy as it goes via the sun um it loses all its ices as it's going and it loses a lot of material this dust kind of comes off it it dehydrates the surface of the comet because
0: because the surface of the comet was never compressed to the point where it could be bound tightly
2: exactly so we have a fluffy surface and it's that's i love the i love this dust this is what i do but um and
0: the other answer uh matt is cosmic fabric softener
2: Okay, and we make. Okay, that's <laughs> interesting. Okay, so we are completely out of time, and I wish we'd had longer for that. Yeah, that, that was a lot of fun. But, i um, got to tell you, that was. A lot yeah, of fun. I think we've learned quite a lot. I've I've learned some stuff as well. It's good. Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm sure it was super cool to have Matt here because yeah. I got to tell you, having somebody who was actually a part of the mission. Yeah. I mean, I really learned a lot. This was fantastic. Okay.
2: We are we're very lucky to have him. But thank you so much, Matt. Um, you've been fantastic you. as always, um, and I love your shirt, so that's cool. Didn't mention that. Um, but that's all we have time for. So, well, thanks, thanks for joining us. Thanks. We've had good fun. So that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Matt Taylor from ESA, who's joined us, and Chuck Nice, and that was Star Talk All Stars. I am Dr. Natalie Starkey.
1: This is Star Talk.